Welcome to episode 36 of the Cyber Guy podcast. I'm your host, retired FBI supervisory special agent, Darren Mott. And in this podcast, I'm going to talk about leadership and especially leadership within the cyber world with retired FBI special agent, Tom Ferguson. So a quick note about Tom before we get to him. He was one of my former bosses at FBI headquarters. He was an assistant section chief within the counterintelligence division, one of the better bosses I ever had in the FBI, a man of faith, good guy, and we have a really good conversation about leadership overall, not just within the FBI, but within just leadership in general. Uh, and I wanted to do this podcast for quite a while since um, I saw some reporting about the SolarWinds CEO blaming an intern uh, for the pass, bad password management on their server. And so I really wanted to talk about what leadership looks like. And I hope you find some value in, in the conversation we have. But before we get to that, I want to talk about one particular news item that I saw this week that was interesting. This is coming from ThreatPost.com, Elizabeth Montalbano reporting. And it has to, the title of the, this particular article is Microsoft Warns of 25 Critical Vulnerabilities in Internet of Things Devices and Industrial Control Devices. This is not a surprise, but it's something that is interesting because if you think about it, I'm sure everyone listening to this podcast has an IoT device somewhere, be it a smart thermometer, a Nest thermometer, or one of the new Honeywells, which I have two of those. Could be uh, uh, could be a, a smart TV. It could be an Alexa device. It could be the Apple HomePod. Anything that uses software to run it that is not necessarily a computer per se would be an Internet of Things device. And we actively attach these to our home networks without much thought into the security going around it. The SNIOT would stand for security, but since there's no SNIOT, there's no really security in IoT, which means that it's very easy for bad guys to find vulnerabilities within these devices, exploit them, and get access to other devices on the same network, which is why you probably really need to think of how you connect these devices to your network by using separated virtual local area networks and stuff like that. But I certainly understand that this is not something very easy for folks to do. If, if I was smart, I would come up with a quick little 20-minute video and post it on LinkedIn or somewhere for people to do it. I might actually do that here in the next couple of weeks. But just... Um, reading from this report, just to get back on, on topic here, uh, security researchers at Microsoft are warning the industry about 25 as yet undocumented critical memory allocation vulnerabilities across a number of IoT and industrial devices that threat actors could exploit to execute malicious code across the network or cause an entire system to crash. Now, this is more corporately oriented for those companies that have IoT devices or industrial control devices on their network. Industrial control devices are part of operational technology networks, which are somewhat different than your informational technology networks, but they still kind of connect now. Uh, and so this is problematic in that if you can get access to a piece of that network and cause a complete system crash, this is certainly a vulnerability that you want to kind of patch. But it's also something that, that we as consumers can think about in our home networks because you'll have a lot of things connected to your networks and all a bad actor needs is one vulnerability and they can pivot off of those devices and do bad things. As an example of this, uh, there was an uh, 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 incident about two years ago, roughly. I don't exactly have the, the, the date down. It's nearly not important. But there was a casino in Las Vegas that found a data breach in which someone got into their network and stole personal identifiable information from a bunch of the people that had visited or had accounts at the uh, hotels, particularly big spenders. So these were people with a lot of money and these bad guys got access to their personal identifiable information. The way they got into the network was through the thermometer in the fish tank. Though the thermometer in the fish tank was an IOT device, which means that they could remotely control it to, to measure the water temperature, the the salinity, and, and things like that within that particular water tank, they were bad guys were able to exploit a vulnerability in that thermometer and pivot from that onto the main network to gain access to the casino's uh, network to steal the information they wanted. So I, I use that as an example to show that all the things you connect to your network have vulnerabilities. So you need to keep them updated. You need to really sometimes consider, is it something we need to have on our network? Uh, and just kind of take those those particular precautions. 
So one other article I want to talk about, I know I, know I mentioned I was only going to talk about one, but this is another interesting one that just goes to show the proof of how bad guys are getting in networks and the ease with which they're doing it. But this, again, is from Threat Post. Lisa Voss is reporting. The title says, New Crypto Stealer Panda Spread Via Discord. So Panda Stealer is delivered in rigged Excel files masquerading as business quotes. So from the story on Tuesday, Trend Micro, Trend Micro Researchers said that they first spotted the Panda Stealer malware uh, in April. The most recent wave of spam campaign has had the biggest impact on Australia, Germany, Japan, and the U.S. The spam mails are masquerading as business quote requests to lure victims into clicking on booby-trapped Excel files. The researchers found 264 files similar to Panda Stealer on VirusTotal, with some of them being shared by threat actors on Discord. All that to be said, what this particular um, malware does is it looks for cryptocurrency credentials to try to steal, you know, your crypto uh, currency from your online stored um, wallets. But the, the point of this article, and the reason I make the point out, is it's not a sophisticated campaign. It's simply spear phishing. They are sending information in an Excel spreadsheet that when you open the Excel spreadsheet, bad things happen on your network. It drops this particular file on your computer, and then if you have cryptocurrency and you go to make a transaction, they get your login information and they steal your money. All that to be said, you need to understand that you need to be careful what it is you open and click uh, through email or through text messages, things like that. Social engineering works. The majority of intrusions still occur through this particular type of methodology. So if you have an attachment, if you have the capability to open it in a virtual machine um, and see if anything bad happens or read the file, see if it's bogus, that's your best way. But I certainly understand not everyone can do that. So I would just say if you have a suspicious email, contact the sender directly to verify that they sent you what they say they're sending you and that it's something that's to be expected. Uh, and again, just be careful how you how you move through. Make sure you understand the threats targeting you. Assess your risk. Proceed wisely. With that, let's talk about leadership. Well, it's an honor for me to welcome to the Cyber Guy podcast a good friend and a former boss, Tom Ferguson. Tom is currently the president of Smoothstone Strategies and a senior policy advisor for national security. And when I knew him, he was the assistant section chief for CD8 in the counterintelligence division of FBI headquarters, Tom Ferguson. Tom, welcome to the show, and I appreciate you taking the time to have a little chat with me. Thanks, Darren. It's uh, truly an honor uh, to be here with you, and certainly wonderful to reconnect with a dear brother and friend. Absolutely. There will be tens of people that will listen to this, I'm sure, when it's all said. (laughs) (laughs) So, so Tom, before we start, um, I do want to... With most of the former Bureau folks I talk to, I I talk about what their career was, because we all have a pre- pre-FBI and FBI in a post-FBI career in most cases. Absolutely. Because the current FBI folks won't talk to me because they're not allowed to by current policy guidelines. But sure. we're, we're both post, so we can talk. So so give us a little bit. Talk about your, your FBI career. What did you do before you were in the Bureau? Where were you assigned when you were in it? And uh, we'll go from there. Sure, absolutely. Um, so I'm one of those weird guys, and we've, we've all heard of, of, of those guys and gals who dreamt about the kind of the, the you know the quintessential cheesy. I wish I always wanted to be an FBI agent. Uh, that, believe it or not, and uh, my my parents and my aunts and uncles would back this up. Uh, probably since about fifth grade, I had actually read every book that I had in our little parochial school library about the FBI. I loved watching the shows and just thought it was the coolest thing in the world. So um, that was a very intentional goal. But of course, as you and I both know, you don't just you know sashay out of college with your degree and walk right into the FBI. And so, uh, what I did is I ended up working a year in sales, um, in burglar and fire alarms, and, and some insurance and stuff like that. As I prepared and then took the local police test, and I ended up being and just by dumb luck, actually, I was hired in my hometown of Menor, Ohio, which is uh, course, as you know, a suburb of the great mistake on the lake of Cleveland, Ohio, yes. and uh, about 25 miles northeast thereof. So right in the snow belt, which I know you knew well from your time up there and uh, loved it. Nothing like eight months of winter and driving a, a police car <laughs> through all types of, uh, of weather. So I did that for four years. And at the ripe old age of 27, was blessed to, uh, of course, make my way in because they must have lowered the standards enough for guys like you and I to get in right. in the mid nineties. And I snuck in in class 96, 22 of September of 1996. So what you, so, okay. So where was your first posting? 
Because obviously, so you're coming from coming from Cleveland, and as you mentioned, I, I spent two years in in one wonderful Cleveland. I was on the west side, so I had to get a passport to go on to the mentor side if I wanted to <laughs> go over exactly there. Exactly right. Yeah, so what, Cleveland so, is one of those east side west side cities. Everyone has their little ways right. that they like to you know delineate themselves. And Cleveland's an by, east side west side right. deal, but separated near the, by the two shall meet. Separated but, by the Cuyahoga. Uh, yeah. So yeah, it's funny. Mm-hmm. So the, the bureau likes to you know they have a sense of humor. I'm convinced. And so I worked my way outward trying to outsmart them. As you and I know, we had the, the dubious honor of ranking all 56 field offices, one through 56. Mm-hmm. And for our friends out there who weren't bureau folks like you and I, you know, it's very simple, as you know, Darren, to rank the first 10 and probably equally as simple to rank the last 10. But there's a lot of, a lot in the middle. Right, right, right. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and you remember orders night well, but I ended up getting my seventh pick working out concentrically from the, the hub of everything, of course, Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, where we both know I'd never get sent back to, and I was sent to Chicago. And so I thought, huh, a cold city on a lake, I can do this. <laughs> right. Now, I, I, now let's step back a second. So you, mentioned, you mentioned orders. Now, I don't think I've mentioned this in any of my other podcasts, but it, when you're in new agent class, I don't know if your class did this. I'm sure I'm sure you did in 96, I'm sure, because in 99 yep. we were doing it. But everybody put in 10 bucks, and whoever got the worst pick got the pool. So <laughs> so at number seven, I guarantee you, you did not win the pool. I know on my, my class, it was number 27 was the guy who won our, our pool. Who, who won your pool? Uh, well, the one who won would have been Kevin Dutton, who ended up going to Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. And I, I never almost saw a grown man cry because he, <laughs> he, he didn't even know where it was on a map. <laughs> He was from San Francisco, former minor league baseball player turned financier. He ended up being my roommate uh, in our first assignment, you know, uh, out of the gate as new agents, a wonderful human being, love him to death. Would you believe, here's a fun fact, he ended up loving it so much because, of course, as you as you may know, it's actually a resort town. Mm. And so it's actually beautiful. And he's stayed there for the rest of his career. And I believe he's still there now, even in retirement. So there you go. Wow. So, <laughs> Everybody nice. felt sorry for okay. him. And he stayed there his whole career. All right. So you got to Chicago. This would be 96, 97 timeframe. What'd you work? What'd you, do you have any good cases? What'd you do there? Uh, counterintelligence. Uh, I, I, you know, back in those days, there were so many of us coming through. I think we had 24 classes come through uh, Quantico and New Agent Training. Uh, in 96, fiscal 96. So a lot of us pumping through. And of course, the major field offices, as you would know, Darren, we're all getting a lot of bodies thrown at them. So we had a new agent squad in Chicago, which was actually a brilliant idea. We spent six months on that squad, literally going from squad to squad uh, on a rotational basis throughout that six months. And then if you weren't on a rotation that week, you'd be kind of working your little baby starter cases, like a white collar case or a, or or maybe a bank robbery case or a fugitive case. But it was a wonderful way. That was at that time, I think it still might be, our third largest field office. And it was the largest one not run by an assistant director. Uh, it was third or fourth largest. But either way, you'd never get to know anybody. And this really, you allowed, you kind of met the whole office. And then at the end of the six months, you got to pick what, again, you would, where you'd like to go as far as a substantive squad. And, and that was all based, of course, on needs of the office and perhaps a smidge of politics. But uh, mm-hmm. all that to say... Uh, I had wanted, even though I was a police officer, I really wanted to work counterintelligence. I thought that was the coolest thing, and I was fortunate enough to to land a, and do that for my first six years. And so I, I ended up working all Middle Eastern matters, predominantly Iran and Iraq, a smattering of Syria and Egypt, et cetera. And um, it was a good time. And then, of course, we were gearing up for what would later become Iraqi freedom. I was at headquarters for my first tour when that kicked off, but. The, the war drums were beating and we were running operations against the then Saddam re- regime. So it was a lot of fun. Great. So, so the, the reason I want to have you on, I want to talk about leadership because you obviously were one of the, one of my leaders and mentors during my career in the FBI. And I, as I was thinking through who, you know, who are some good leaders that I dealt with that I would want to have conversation with on this and what kind of prompted creating this was the solar winds. None of them were available. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're top of the list, Tom. Yeah, well, I'll be honest. But two of them I've talked to before on other topics. So you know, you're, okay. you're in the top five. So yeah. So but but on leadership, this is because obviously I think this is. I'm just kidding. Because I think in knowing you, leadership and developing good leaders and having people in roles to help lead people to really be their best person. You were one of those, one of the few I ever met in the bureau that had that heart to do that. A lot of them were just don't get me in trouble so I can move up to the next level. You were not one of those people. And I, I truly appreciate it. At least coming into headquarters my second time, which was not the, that's a whole nother story, maybe for another yeah, podcast, right. but you know, it came into an interesting, <laughs> situ- podcast. It's into an interesting situation. But anyway, that being said, so with the solar winds event, the, the CEO of solar winds was called in front of Congress 
and they were asked about the intrusion into their servers, and, and it was a misconfigured server that had a password of one two password one two three on the server that got hacked by the hack the group that got in there. And his his explain his explanation to Congress was, well, we had an intern, and that was the password they used. That is to me, I saw that. Said, oh, that's great leadership right there. And hence, this podcast today was born. So yeah. let's talk about leadership. Yeah. So we of course first met in 2011. You were my you know, assistant section chief. Uh, in the counterintelligence division, what made you decide to get into leadership in the FBI? So if we remember, if I recall anyway, at least at, at the time we were in, currently there's a five-year waiting period for agents to get into leadership. When we were in, that didn't exist. You could really go into leadership <laughs> at two years if you wanted to, if you could get to a headquarters job. And after 9-11, sure. a lot of people got there. But what made you decide to get it? Because a lot of people, if you talk to first office agents, they'll say, I'm never going to, I'm just going to be an agent on my whole career. I'm never going to get into leadership. And then I was one of those people. Certainly. And I'm sure you probably were at the beginning too. Yet here we both are spent the, the last two thirds of our career doing leadership stuff in the, in the bureau and around the bureau. So it's what crazy. made you want to get into it? So, so crazy. And yes, to everything you said, I mean, the, so you, you'll laugh because my story is, is not unique. I'm sure in this regard. Yes. When I first got in, you know, because I, I was one of those kids who uh, quite honestly, Darren, you know, the goal had always been become an FBI agent. And so then when I actually became an FBI agent, it was like, Holy crap! I didn't think I'd actually become an FBI agent, so now I have to have new goals. <laughs> <Right>. yes, <laughs> I didn't yes. think that would ever actually yep. happen. So then, when it happened, it was like, oh, well, I guess I better, you know, actually get in here and here we go. <laughs> but like you, when I when I when I got my first assignment in the Chicago field office, I had so much fun actually doing the actual work that even though I think originally, you know, you, you thought, oh wow, wouldn't it be cool to be an assistant director or blah 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 and all this great stuff, you know, you. Louis Free was still director when I got in, all these kind of things. I mean, you thought, oh, yeah, shoot for the stars kind of thing, and maybe aim and you end up in the trees, and that's fine. But I had no intention of it. But here's what happened, honest to goodness. I was happy as a pig in slop, and then I was trying to do all these advanced operations. And you know that I love the, the human operations, the double agent, the sophisticated things that we did to, to mix up with bad guys. And I was really kind of on this kick, and we were doing things against the, the, the then Saddam regime and some of the near-do-wells in Iran, and it was a lot of fun. And what I found is I was doing a lot of homework to get smart about our, our craft, our business, and, and, and reading the old – you remember the big old red book AG guidelines that were like you know 10 inches tall. Mm -hmm. And like yourself, I mean you, know, you, you started studying the things that um, would allow you to get to yes to run a certain kind of operation. So here I found as a young – you know, not so young as a, maybe, you know, because I went after six years in the field, which I wouldn't recommend going earlier, but I did wait that long. But anyway, probably about four or five years in, I'm doing all these sophisticated operations and I'm realizing I'm talking to some of these headquarters program managers. You're going to laugh when I say this. <laughs> they have no idea what I'm talking about. I'm taking them. I'm like, well, I'm on page 307 in the AG guidelines and I'm like reading them like, you know, where I'm at. And, and frankly, it was either a combination of you know, they couldn't be bothered or, or they didn't understand what I was talking about or the answer kind of like the Capital One Visa commercial is always no. And I'm thinking, well, anyone can do that. I mean, I'd like to be the, the guy, you know, who goes there and gets you to yes. So maybe Oklahoma doesn't have what they need to do X. But my job, I thought, you know, maybe I can help you say, hey, Darren, I, I know you want to do X, but you're not quite there yet. But if you do Y and Z, I can get you there. But see, I couldn't even get that out of headquarters, Darren. So I was thinking, we need some people who can get us to yes. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of the impetus. For, so for me, I almost fell into it just because I got so tired of always either doing their work for them or being told no. And I know you can relate to that. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's exactly the same thing, especially because I worked I worked cyber my entire career. My first, I was on a cyber squad that wasn't even called a cyber squad because we didn't have a cyber division. We didn't know what the hell it was. So I was on the <laughs> National Infrastructure Protection Center squad, and I had an under, within a year of joining the bureau, I was drafting my an undercover operation. I ended up running for five years, but same thing. I would call headquarters to get money, and it'd be a different person every time for the first three years. It kept fluctuating back and forth. And unlike you, I I had to wait a little longer. I waited till seven years before I actually went up to went up to uh, head, seven and a half actually before I went to headquarters. So I waited a little longer, um, but the same idea. How in my whole goal, and I and I think you had this same mentality, and you don't see it a lot. And maybe it's a government thing, maybe it's an FBI thing, maybe it's just a leadership thing overall. And we're going to get to 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 the cyber piece of this later on because this is essentially or ostensibly I don't know if I'm using the right word a cyber podcast, <laughs> a cyber podcast. we'll talk yeah. about cyber eventually but this all feeds to the same thing 
that, um, you know, how can I help the people? How can I serve people and allow them to do what they need to do? Because I recognize it probably took me eight or 10 years that, let's be honest, leadership in the FBI is jacked pretty badly. Not always, not everywhere, but there's a lot of problems. So you want to take some of that problem off of the people that you support so that they can do what they need to do to get the mission. Because at the end of the day, it's still about the mission. And the yes. Bureau has a great mission, and I think we all support it. And I think you and I, and I'm, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm filibustering here, but we've, no. looked at the, we've looked at the news stories on leadership in the FBI in the last th- two or three years, and it's, it's, hard to watch. it's, it's vomitous, honestly. It's hard and, to but watch. but it's, it's been like that a long time. I think it's just finally reaching the, the, the light. But, you know, let's talk a little bit about how the FBI chooses leaders. Um, it's a bit different, well, I think, in the government yeah. from the private sector, because the private sector, I think you, you actually try to interview people to fill the roles. But we don't we at least maybe it's different now, but we didn't really do that in the bureau. No, you're right. And I know we both are equally qualified to speak on this issue uh, for sure. And, and I was going to say, you know, we're, we're going to both get in trouble here because, you know, everyone who ever came from the FBI has this love hate relationship and the old adage is, and you can love the bureau, but it won't love you back. Right, exactly. And that's very true. Mm-hmm. And, and so, you know, we, we all, uh, you and I unequivocally love the FBI and always did, but there were warts. And, you know, when you're part of a family, you know, nobody knows the family <laughs> issues more than someone in the family. And certainly we were privileged to be part of the family. And I'll tell you the way we chose leaders was puzzling it best. I, I, and again, I, you and I are benefited from this, so it's, I, it's ironic, but right. sure. look, first of all, let's be honest, at least when we were doing it, and I think we'll talk to what they're doing now, it's a little bit perhaps different and better, we hope, but it was an all-volunteer army, yep. so if you raised your hand, you could fog a mirror, and you could fill out you know, whatever that version of the application was. It changed a couple times throughout your and my career. Mm-hmm. Um, that was sufficient enough. And then hopefully your supervisor would, would give you a baseline recommendation. And you and I know words mattered, you know, but, but all that to say, that was, the, that was the general process. Then if you were lucky enough to get into the pool and you were selected, great. But here's the problem. Because it's an all-volunteer army, you have everybody from megalomaniacs and incompetents to you know, people who were true servant leaders and, and some people who were just in it for the money princess like Han Solo. So I mean, <laughs> you had a, a myriad of, of, of motivations that you are working against. Some of them were benevolent and pure and actually trying to serve the great American people and, and many were not so much. And then you're stacked up against you know, the old adage of those who can't teach. Well, in this case, you know, some of those who couldn't were trying to now lead. We had some of our worst probably field agents uh, for whatever reason trying to become leaders. And some of them, in fact, did and rose quite high, I might add. <laughs> but, you know, there's a danger, Darren, as you and I know, in staying in place long enough, whether it's as a case agent or in any leadership position, to be deemed fatally competent. <laughs> and right, 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 most, right, yep. most would do the opposite. And they would try to move through like a grease pig faster, you know, than some, so nobody really recognized how completely incompetent they were yep. and they were off to the next mark. And the way the bureau leadership was structured, you know, you never took a swing at a guy that was already gone. So we digress, but the bottom line was to your point, we never had in-person interviews. It was baffling to me. I had to go in for an in-person interview to get a produce clerk job in a grocery store in high school. I mean, why to be a, the leader of the best organization in the free world is someone not going to interview me? It's right. crazy. Yep. Um, so it, it was very ironic in the process. And of course, there was always some degree of gamesmanship because we're right. human beings. And, sure. and that goes without saying. And it is kind of funny slash almost cute. How no matter how much we would lock that process down and lock it down and lock it down. And you and I saw throughout our two plus decade long careers how rightfully the Bureau tried to remove all of that bias out of it. But we're human beings. Yep. And so there's always going to be that. Um, but I think uh, it started and stopped for me with an all volunteer army. Anyone could be selected and very little in the way of vetting. So that is, I think for that, I'll put a point on that for now. We'll come back to some other aspects later. And I'll give, I'm going to give two antidotes to that. They're both my antidotes and they're both reflect the good and the bad of both. Actually the bad of both, the bad of each. And I was 
a victim of one, a benefit of the other. So, so my first job I ever put in for headquarters, I was recruited by a unit. Um, it was the intellectual property rights unit, at FBI headquarters. I was recruited to replace a guy there. Um, and so this was during the time of the 18 month TDY started. We're not going to go down the road of that, but effect- effectively they put a freeze on that for a while. So, so I'd, I'd put in and then they didn't do the, they didn't do the job. The job got pulled. And then a year later they reposted it again. So I had done a five year undercover operation was largely considered. I'm not trying to toot my own horn here because I, I, no, I, I try to be, but, but I was, but prob- I was one of the, I was yeah. one of the few people in the bureau that understood intellectual property, had a successful case had prosecuted people and had people rest all over the world. I figured I'm, I can probably write to this job and, and few people can, I did not get the job. I lost to a guy who had never worked a cyber case in his life in another field office. He'd worked terrorism the whole time. But for whatever reason, whatever conglomeration of, of career board was there, they liked his examples better because all because the, the way that you would do it is you would answer to these competencies, leadership, communication, whatever. And, and they yep. were all nondescript to the job. Like if they wanted you to do a, if they wanted a cyber supervisor, the answer to the leadership question, and it wasn't even a question. It was tell us an example when you were a good leader, didn't matter if you were cyber or not. So he just happened to right. write better than I and good for him that he could write better than I could. He was still whatever. I well, up, yes I, and no, because we know how subjective that could sure. be. Because that same application could have had you, you know, and that's speeding being number one in a whole different package. Right. But anyway. and, and let me let me bring it, <laughs> let me bring it. And I ended up getting a better job, and it worked out. But like I said, you know, God was looking out for me. I got a better job. It worked out. But anyway, and then let's jump ahead to 2011 when you and I met. I'll be quite honest. I was not qualified for the unit chief job I got. I was not a counterintelligence person. I was going into a counterintelligence division unit to oversee counterintelligence agents having not really worked counterintelligence other than cyber national security counterintelligence investigations to a certain extent. And I managed, managed those cases. The only argument I'll make in my own defense was that the unit that was created was a cyber-specific unit. So I did have that skill set. But certainly there were other counterintelligence. I'm sure you were part of that career board, as, and you didn't know who I was coming in. But let's be honest, the... AD of counterintelligence, Frank Fagluzzi, was my SAC in Cleveland. He wanted me for the job, and that's how I got it. Yeah, and, and you know, and for the audience, uh, for our for our dozens listening out there, <laughs> I will say that uh, he, uh, my friend Darren, is greatly uh, under underplaying his 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 competencies, <laughs> and and certainly uh, did an amazing job in that. But yeah, I, I appreciate the humility. But it's very interesting, you know, a good friend of mine once said, and this is true, I think, in anyone's promotional process, so this doesn't have to necessarily just be FBI-centric, but, you know, this, the example was don't ever measure your self-worth based on the results of an FBI promotional board. You yes. Know, if that yes. was the case, right. there'd right. be an even more alcoholics <laughs> in the FBI. So, uh, you know, it kind of is what it is, right. and some, some days, as my training officer in the police department once told me, some days you're the bug and some days you're the windshield. So (laughs) it just depends on what day it is. So anyway, and I'll give the bureau credit because they do do mostly interviews now. I know that for the last job I had, there was an interview process, but it was still at the time, even when I did it in 2014, it was up to the office to want to do it. It just happened in Birmingham. That was a, that was a standardization. They had all their jobs that did interviews. Now the interview process itself is very, was very structured and you can only ask these questions and you can't go outside the question, whatever, but but you know, so yeah. they're trying to. I but think it's a step trying... in the right direction. Yes. To be fair, Correct. it really it Absolutely. is, and I think it's a little less um, optional now and more on. I don't know if it's 100 percent mandatory, but it, it may be that they do have to do that. And and thank goodness for that, you know. And mm-hmm. and so the bureau is evolving in that regard, as I'm sure many other places are. But uh, we'll talk about some other things that we sure. probably can and should do better across the board. But anyway, and this is one of these, this is one of these tangential questions I told you about. We're going to go off my script here, but one of the funny sure. things I find, and if you, if you and I both look back to when we were there, the number of obstacles we had to overcome for, for people in executive management, I'm talking senior executive service, poo-pooing the cyber altogether and saying, why do you have that unit? What are you doing? Blah, blah, blah. The number of them that then are now in cybersecurity executive positions in the private sector makes me laugh. Every time I see them post something about, hey, let's talk about this cyber thing. I mean, you know, Sean, yes. Sean George yes. has a perfect example. Come on. What are we talking about here? I mean, whatever. But there's other names well, I could do. But I don't, if you I don't walked want... through a room that had a computer, evidently you're qualified <laughs> yes, for a job. Exactly. Uh, and some guys, uh, you know, but I will say there was another there was another bureau boss of ours who will remain nameless who always famously quipped and it's not his line that's why you know it's, that success has a thousand fathers 
but you know, uh, in the bureau, you know, we, you know, you and I would both probably know the people at the bottom who actually did all the work, but right. it's amazing how many layers above would uh, take the credit and reap the benefit, right. which so, by the way, we'll talk about later is the exact an- antithesis, in my opinion, of leadership. Right. But, so, so um, we, we'll get to stop bashing the bureau. The bureau certainly has its, its challenges and continues to do so, but maybe hopefully they're moving in the right direction. So let's talk about just the development of leadership as a whole, because I think one area where most industries fail is how they do train their leaders. The bureau certainly had, did not have much of a training training capability other than here's your desk here's your files go make this work but um i think but i think that's across all industries because really you don't necessarily hire leaders you hire people to fill leadership positions do you find that that's the in now in your in your job now as a consultant and seeing seeing the other side of the house yes. do you see that to be that that this failure in leadership or the the inability to train leaders is not just a government thing. It's not just a bureau thing. It's a it's a everywhere thing. It, it is absolutely an everywhere thing. And to go back to our beloved friends at the bureau, who you know, uh, and it's funny, uh, uh, yes, on that. But I think you and I undervalue ourselves because even though we may have suffered through, you know, the bureau is an amazing organization that, like anything else, is still growing in some regards and trying to figure out how to do things better. And certainly, the HR uh, leadership part is something that they're working on. But even having said that, you and I are products of that system, and I will tell you in no uncertain terms, I've been in meetings and I've led meetings on the three different continents now in my current role, and it's amazing, and you and I know this to be true, like you'll sit there and, and how many times you're in a meeting that is either very poorly run, there doesn't seem to be an objective, or somebody is, is literally, it's like Ferris Bueller's Day Off with the teacher scene, I mean, someone's like saying two plus two, two plus two, two plus two, and you just want to scream like Sam Kennison, the answer is four, <laughs> people are just sitting there. Most people don't have, you and I had the privilege of working for an organization that put us in positions to succeed as far as, or, or you know, rise or fall, but in our case, hopefully we rose, to the challenge of being able to lead elite teams with difficult problems and, and come to us. And, and there's a place for that, Darren. And even though Maybe we kind of muddled through it through a sort of sort of an informal bro net of a process. On the other side of that, to your point, going back to this question, I have seen that the corporate America does not necessarily have have a monopoly on, on leadership either. So, you know, what? Why? Why is that? Because I think we're all. First of all, you can take it this to the macro macro level. If you want to pick a field, I don't care if you pick, you know, uh, p- politics or 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 the commercial sector. You know, I mean, the private sector, the public sector, you can take the church, you can take any institution you want, academe, et cetera, and they are clearly starved for leadership. Part of that is you have to have a backbone, I think. And, and, and you know, being comfortable in who you are and who you're not and just going with that, you and I know, and I think one of the most important, and I'm sort of riffing here, but they're really, this is an important heart matter to me. So many people you and I worked for and with, and this occurs, I see it out in the private sector as well, feel like they have to be the smartest person in the room. Feel like because they have that title, thou shalt not know anything else other than what I know. And the and, and so that hubris, that pride gets in their way of actually learning and being effective. Everybody, you know, it's very simple, as you and I know, if you love your people like family and take care of their, their needs, uh, you shouldn't have to be taught that. Shame on you if you do. But if you do that, They'll go to literally hell and back for you to do anything. And they don't expect Darren or Tom or anyone else to be a subject matter expert in all things. But what they do expect you to do is to be humble enough to listen and then process the information and take good counsel and make a wise decision. And we don't see those characteristics very often. So why is that? Because corporate America, the same thing. You know, Darren, when you were – if you ever played sports, if you you were out there in the field – you know, you can say what you want uh, to your friends, but you really know who's a better shortstop or you know who's a better point guard or you know in your heart of hearts it may not be you, it may not be me. Same thing in America. You know, we know who makes a good pizza and a bad pizza. Well, you know, why is that? Because we talk about it. Well, people out in the bullpen or the squad area or the cubicles in, in the private sector, they know who's talented too. They may not want to admit that Sally or Jim or Bob are more talented than they. But if you took a survey, they would say, I think this person, that person, and that person has these talents. We don't do a good job of spotting, assessing, 
developing and mentoring talent early on. And so what you get then are the megalomaniac careerists who, you know, oftentimes have sociopathic tendencies, if we're being quite honest, who are all in it for themselves. And they will launch up and climb up your back in the back of their stepmom, their grandma, their grandma's stepmom, <laughs> and anyone else to get to the top. So we have failed to do a good job at identifying leadership early, equipping them. I'm not necessarily saying, you know, you bifurcate people as to the haves and haves nots because that's people can always grow and rise and all that. But the people that are clearly, you know, you need to you need to spot and assess them early and get them into some sort of program that's going to help them grow. Because much to the chagrin of, of the Bob Mullers and the Jim Comeys and everyone else, some point they all have to leave. And guess what? I've never seen, rarely seen, I'll say, anyone in the Bureau or most places for that matter do a good job of identifying their replacement and ensuring that that person is going to be greater than or equal to yourself so the organization doesn't miss a beat. The Bureau for the longest time has struggled with that because as you and I know, and again, not bashing the Bureau, just an example, if you get a, a supervisory assignment from headquarters in the Cleveland field office, by the time you get out to that squad to take over, Darren, you're, you're, your person's already been gone for 90 days, perhaps. Mm -hmm. They've been a rudderless ship. There's been no transition of any kind. Many other organizations, including those in the intelligence community and government, do that differently. So that is one area. Identifying, well, identifying talent early, right? Uh, training your replacement. And then having some type of overlap with the people who will be coming in. So at least, even if it's only a week, it's better than nothing. That's, that is a fantastic point. And so, so let's talk about characteristics of good leaders. So we kind of went down that road a little bit. So let's go down there a little, a little bit deeper. So what are some, what are areas or what are characteristics that you have found in good leaders that you've worked with? And let's, 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 let's add both ends of that. And what are characteristics in bad leaders? I can tell you some of the ones I've seen, especially yeah. from a bad perspective, because I did, I spent a year in inspection division. So you saw a lot of bad leadership as you went out and inspected offices, but even within the inspection division itself, it was full of a lot of these megalomaniacs, as you like to talk about, that, you know, they couldn't find a, a they couldn't find an operational SES job. They took an inspector job because someone would take them. And chances are, in a lot of cases, somebody, they, they're SAC because they, if they came as an inspector, they were probably an ASAC before that. So assistant special agent in charge. Chances are the SAC, the special agent in charge, said, how do I get rid of this ASAC because he sucks? So they would call the inspection mm -hmm. division and say, man, do I have somebody for you? This is the guy who you, cause I, I remember it was one, this one, this one inspector. And it just, just still digs at me today. Eight years later, I was doing a, I was doing a fixing a document somebody else had worked on and that particular inspector or um, team leader had left and he needed me to update this one page document. So I edited it in where I, everything was done in word. I edited, it, gave him the copy and he sends it, I, I go somewhere to do something else. I come back and on my desk is a copy of that document. He needed me to add a comma. Now, my, my only problem with that is I don't mind adding the comma. But if I'm, a, if I'm in his position, I'm like, hey, send me that Word document. I just need to add a comma and I can send it where I need to go next. But it had to go through this process where he knew that he could make me add that comma. So, and oftentimes too, that meant that you had to go right back up the entire chain of command yes. to get everyone before you to then sign it so that they could go back to the guy who put the comma in. Right, exactly. So, right. is that effective leadership? Of course, it isn't. Mm. You know, and that goes back to real quick sidebar, and then I'll hit with the what you asked me about directly about the characteristics. Yeah. One thing I neglected to talk about, and you and I know from from the Kellogg uh, school that we went to, or was it the IBM school for for leadership? The bureau did have some they did, moments while, of brilliance yes. where they sent us. Yep. But remember, we learned about the two types of leaders, and I love this example because it's so true. Transformational leaders and transactional leaders. Mm -hmm. And so transformational leaders are your game changers, are your visionaries, your problem solvers. Um, and I would say uh, they're your true leaders because the old adage is, is that managers do things right, but leaders do the right thing. And there's a big difference. And in my estimation, transactional leadership, which is the second type of leaders, those are your box checkers, your list makers, your everything's quantified in spreadsheets and pie graphs and, you know, and all this kind of stuff. And they check the block, but they can't see outside the box that, in fact, Sally, who's one of your employees, is not focused, not because she's an underperformer, but because her mom has stage four ovarian cancer and she's also going through a divorce with her husband. 
So if you're not a human enough, if you have to be reprogrammed back at the robot shop of leadership, you, you would understand that. So transactional leaders, and we, you and I work for some, we won't name names, they have a hard time processing the whole package. And oftentimes the way that at least the Bureau selected things, especially because you went down the inspection road, they were the people who are really good at the checklist and this, and this is how you do, and this is how you don't go. You stay out of jail here, this is how you succeed, you follow this list. But they aren't the people who are going to change the way we're going to attack an asymmetric threat or lead a multicultural, diverse workforce into the future with success. And I'm talking about generational gaps and things of that, Gen Xers and millennials and you name it. And how do you, if you don't have a transformational visionary, you're dead in the water. You can't have a bean counter and a, and a box checker. So we struggled with that. And that was an Achilles for the Bureau many times. And not just us, but probably others. Ironically, this goes back to spotting and assessing, Darren. You need to be able to spot those, uh, whether it's you know a 360-degree leadership uh, review or it's, it's other people or some type of a general test. I don't know what that looks like. But say that person's a visionary, a transformational leader. At the end of the day, if a healthy organization has people in the C-suite, you probably need a mix. But I think you need to be heavier on transformational leaders than transactional because uh, you need the game-changing visionaries to be the ones driving where you're going. You need the other guys to fall behind and implement. So just a, just a thought. But now we'll go to the characteristics, if I may. Sure. And it's very simple. You know, it, it really is. I mean, you could look for something deep and technical here, but it isn't. Uh, I learned most of what I learned about leadership from some great role models. My father, my father-in-law, certainly the Bible, great mentors, and frankly, watching some god-awful horrible leaders and realizing <laughs> whatever you do don't do that right <laughs> so yeah, sure. my mm. best advice i ever had as a brand new supervisory special agent ssa uh, for those who don't know bureau vernacular in the audience was that but i have to say it that way was from one of my mentors in my unit uh, and, and she told me don't be an ssa spelled backwards so <laughs> you know that was probably <laughs> as good enough advice as i as, as you needed but what do you need to be a good leader well humility integrity, passion, and excellence. Um, Darren, I don't know if I ever told you this, but I always taught my, my boys, Jake and Luke, that we do everything in our home with passion and with excellence. And what I meant by that was, and I've probably told you all this when we work together, was passion means I want you to give me your best. You know, people, especially in Northern Virginia, might cringe when I say that I never told my boys the standard was straight A's. For them, the standard was their best. You know, I had two phase player and a phenomenal basketball player. And if my baseball player had an 0 2 count and went down swinging on a 98 mile an hour fastball, which he actually did face with some in high school, um, I'm okay with that. He went down swinging, right? I mean, the point of that was, you know, so passion is energy and excellence might give me your best, not perfection. Christ is perfection, but perfection was give me your best. So, you know, it was excellence and, and give me your best. And, and so that's what you needed. But the ultimate servant leader, you know, hopefully I don't get you in trouble on this podcast for saying it was, of course, Christ himself. You know, sure. the greatest among us came down to serve the least. Well, there, that's all you need to know about leadership. People have it back asswards. Many of the people you and I worked with and for asked, well, what can my people do for me so that I can get my next job? completely backwards where it should have been what can i be doing for my people to grow them to empower them mission and then to promote and train them so they can be successful in whatever their endeavors are in life and the ironic part of this was if you just did that you know the funny thing is you could be promoted up as high as you wanted because your people would love you you and you that's for you and i didn't do it for that reason right. Love people. Because if you did that, all these altru all these all these careerist knuckleheads would have actually done far better. But you can't teach that in a book. You just can't. And the other thing I will say is that your people's successes are always theirs, and their failures are always yours. And that is the essence of leadership. That is a great point. That that that, that, that could be a T-shirt if it didn't have so many words. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> it was too many words. No, no, but no, but no, it's good. No, no, no. And I don't mean I don't mean that. That those were very good words. That is well said. I, I'm not I'm not 
not talking about that. It just, it was, that was a joke that hit in my head. But so obviously we're talking leadership gaps. We talked about leadership thing, but the, the, in, as far as leadership gap goes, this is particularly worse in the cyber arena as, as indicated by the solar winds guy who, who <laughs> made me come up with the idea for this podcast. But because sure. the employment gap in cyber is so bad, I'm dealing with this right now. And in, in the, 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 um, the job, the job I'm in, um, I'm in a position where I'm trying to hire folks to fill vacancies in, in cyber analyst roles. And it's like the housing market. You can't, even if you find someone, you may have them for a little while, but some, some other company is going to come and offer them 10% more and steal them away. So, so that's just the employment gap is a problem, which creates even a leadership gap because, you know, you, it's hard to find leaders when you don't have the people. And, and so that's going to be an even bigger issue, but are there leadership lessons that you've learned from your years in the government? And then from what you do now that can help the cyber sure. industry, because obviously the cyber industry is kind of nascent really. So it hasn't been around as long as most others. Uh, and so I'm sure there is a big problem with them building a leadership functionality there. And if you, and I say that knowing and seeing on LinkedIn, some of the cyber leaders I've seen that I knew were FBI leaders before clearly indicates there's a, there's a gap there in leadership because that's who they're getting to do their leadership stuff. So as the, how do you, how do we fix this in the cyber industry? No, that's a fair question to bring it all back around to the very essence of this wonderful podcast series. And, you know, so truth in lending, as you know, uh, and you know me well enough to know, um, I'm not, and, and the audience knows uh, what we'll know, I'm, uh, I'm not a zeros and ones expert. You and I did amazing work together because we brought kind of chocolate and peanut butter together and came up with a Reese's uh, where I was weak in, in perhaps, you know, actual cyber uh, technical tradecraft. Um, you were very strong and I was strong on the human side and we knew how to go after people on the other side of the keyboards and make their lives miserable. Um, but having said that as a caveat, Here's what I would say. Yes, cyber is not only it's 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 newer. It's not new, but it's newer. So yes, it's still kind of nascent. It's emerging in all the good ways. We do have a, a bunch of folks who, like we joked around earlier, who walked through a room where a computer was on and are now therefore cyber experts. Um, when they were neither leadership nor cyber experts <laughs> before, and right. now they are sadly leading mm -hmm. in cyber. But how could that go right? But but here's the here's the essence of it. I'm going to distill it down into, I think, something that isn't necessarily cyber specific. So forgive me, but I think it applies across the board. So if you're an organization, in this case, we'll say a cyber organization, a cyber security oriented organization. Great. First of all, retaining people is always going to be a challenge in any field. And it's a, and, and we see it across the board. It's not just limited to cyber, but it's certainly probably a little more drastic because it's a smaller pool again. You and I know this, though, Darren, and this is the funny thing. I mean, you know, there's somebody famous once said that all great things in life are simple, you know, and I used to joke that things like the sham wow and the zipper, incredibly <laughs> yeah. simple. Uh, and sham, yet they're the sham they're wow reference. Great, the sham you know? wow. I had, a, I had a thing on how long till the sham wow reference came. So 30, 40 minutes, and 38 seconds. <laughs> and I see your guitar in the background and you and I both share a love of music. And, you know, I'm a, I'm a drummer, you're a guitar player and other, and, and you know, there's nothing like a, the simplicity of a great 4-4 rock song. Things don't have to be complicated to be true and to be precious. And so here's my, my, my nugget about this. If your organization is healthy, and by healthy, I mean it's a place that people want to come to work, right? You have a defined mission. You treat your people as if they're people, as if they're, they're, they, they're valuable. Then I think to some extent – and see – that's all the time. That's incredibly sophomoric and simple. Like, well, yes, Darren, it is, but we don't do it. Okay. I mean, most of us are treated like numbers on a piece of paper and you know, uh, people say the right things, especially in this day and age. And I can't even keep up with what all the right things to say are, but that's a different podcast. <laughs> but the sure. point is, <laughs> the point is people say, Oh yeah, family first. How many times did you and I hear that from our bureau leadership who neither modeled it nor enacted it when it really came to you? Um, well, I, up until a week before 9-11 when Louis Free quit. Yeah. So it's, it, it briefs well, as you and I like to say, downtown. Uh, but most people don't actually live those words. People see that. So they see the inconsistencies. So for the current leadership in an organization that's looking itself in the mirror saying, why am I having such a hard time finding leaders, let alone employees? Um, it's maybe because you have a toxic environment that you work in or maybe – you don't have a defined mission, or maybe you have the wrong people on the bus. 
you know, to Director Comey's point, one thing I did like about when he challenged us uh, prior to whatever it was that he did towards the end there, which is still <laughs> a head scratcher, <laughs> was when we read that great book, you know, From Good to Great. And one of the challenges there was, and it's not hard, but this is an organizational challenge, right? So one of the things that, that Jim Collins says in that book is that you have to essentially know what your mission is, right? He called it the hedgehog concept. What does your organization do? What is your secret sauce? What is so special about you that no one else can do? And just like a hedgehog rolls up in a ball, <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and that's their thing, baby. Um, what is it? Once you've defined that, the next thing you have to do, and this is the other thing you and I know as team builders, Okay, so our mission is to do X with excellence, right? Great. Now, who do we have on the bus? Well, I've got a bunch of people who don't believe in X and some who know how to do Y. Okay, well, are the people who don't believe in X, can we move them along? Maybe we should. Okay, great. The people who know how to do Y but not X, are they coachable? Are they trainable? Do they have good attitudes? Do they have energy? The answer is yes. Stay on the bus. So part of that is, as an organization, it's not as simple as how do we get better leaders. First, you have to define what it is that we do. It's so special. Second, you have to have the right people alongside the bus. And then when you're lucky enough to get them, treat them right. And you'll be surprised how from those moments you can then grow leadership from within. People want to cut. Darren, we live in the age of the microwavable burrito, 24-hour news networks, and the ESPN highlight film. And as a dad who coached his boys and watched them all trying to make the highlight real play instead of the fundamental play, like, hey, it's a ground ball. How about you just field it and throw the guy out? <laughs> Maybe we don't go diving across the field uh, because it looks cool because you didn't need to. You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Let's execute the, the fundamentals with passion and excellence and let's focus on the majors. When we do that, the rest kind of follows. I'm sorry I can't be more specific for cyber, but I think it's just as apropos for them. That is a great answer. And I think actually in, I think you answered seven. My, my last question was making you leadership star. Cause that seems to be my go-to for everybody I have on. I make them a czar of their specialty. And so I think I, I actually, I think your answer to that previous question was your answer to how would you improve or solve the leadership gap? And that is a, that's a, that's a fantastic point. Well, Tom, I really appreciate you taking the time on here to talk. We, we need to stay in touch more. It's funny. You mentioned your drum set. I have a drum set over here on the other side that I'm trying to learn how to play oh. too. So I got, yeah, I have a lot of hobbies. You do it all. Oh, I, I'm, I'm a an, one dimensional. Tell you what, man, I am, an, bangs on I am an inch. I am an inch deep, a mile wide on everything. So, podcast <laughs> creation, all that kind of stuff. But again, I appreciate your your insight on leadership, sir. I wish you were still my boss, and I wish you and your family the best. And uh, thanks again. Thanks, brother. It's an honor, and uh, best to you and your family. So that's going to do it for this episode of the Cyber Guy Podcast. I greatly appreciate you taking the time to listen. Uh, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Tom Ferguson. Hopefully we'll have him on in the future to talk some other stuff. He's a, he has a lot of good insight on, on a lot of different things. If you have questions, comments, or thoughts on future podcasts, feel free to email me, darren at thecyberguy.com. I do respond to my email, so feel free to do that. Feel free to tell your friends to give a listen. Uh, and if you have topics that you think would be useful going forward, feel free to let me know. I'm open to suggestions. Again, as you go through your week, make sure you understand the threats targeting you, assess your risk, proceed wisely, and know that knowledge is protection. Thanks again for listening. Enjoy your weekend. <laughs>